Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 19 will be our key text today on becoming grateful. Now, in our Following Jesus sermon series, I preached a sermon on this very text uh, about two and a half years ago. And I looked back at those notes, and the exegetical notes are the same because it's the same scripture. But what God put in my heart as I read through it this week in preparation was different than what I preached then. And you can go back at, uh, and um, look in your notes or go back in our podcast if you want to wade back through and see that. But as I studied this week, there was something that God spoke to me that I want to share with you in this sermon today. Now, while you're on your way there to Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 19, let me share something with you that I just found interesting by means of illustration. Um, and that's a church historian's take on Thanksgiving. So Robert Caldwell is a PhD in church history, and here's what Dr. Caldwell writes. He says, one of the funny things about history is that plain events, which participants take virtually no notice of, accrue a greater significance in the eyes of later generations. He says, such is the case for the original Thanksgiving meal held in Plymouth, Massachusetts, by the pilgrims and Native Americans in November 1621. It's often said that all that America came to be, its ideals of democracy, freedom, and religious tolerance, was somehow there in that original feast, as the pilgrims were the cause and origination of the American essence. This, of course, is not the case. The pilgrims had no idea of the America that was to come, and the shaping of our nation entailed a lengthy process of decades involving the work of many different peoples and ideas. Yet the pilgrims did bring with them the, a vision for a new life and a new world that was deeply shaped by Scripture and one that evoked an attitude of thanks toward God for the new land that they inhabited. Here are some basic facts from a church historian's perspective related to the history of Thanksgiving in the United States for your pondering. So here's the first one. Did you know that the original pilgrims were close cousins to Baptists? All right, some of you did, some of you are going, all right, well, let's, let's talk about that. The pilgrims were virtually all laden separatists, a group of English congregational separatists, so they separated from the Church of England living in the Netherlands in the 1610s. In the late 1500s, there had become a resistance to that type of separatist movement in England. So those folks believing that way fled across to the mainland Europe to Holland, where they grew uh, as a people, but concerned for the fact that their children might take on Dutch habits, they moved back to England. And so in the 1580s and 1590s, ministers like Robert Brown and Francis Johnson founded some early separatist churches based upon those congregational principles, and they were severely persecuted. In many ways, these Baptists were merely congregational separatists who embraced the additional and very important doctrine of believer's baptism. Not all separatists, of course, uh, agreed with believer's baptism. So that group, led by John Robinson, settled in the English village of Scrooby in 1608 after they had relocated. So they had gone from England over to Leyden and Holland and then back to England. And for a decade there, they thrived, but eventually back to Southampton, England, and where they boarded the Mayflower in August of 1620, bound for the New World, 
over 3,000 miles away. So the first pilgrims were really close cousins to English Baptists. So that's your first fact. Your second fact, did you know that the original Thanksgiving was probably not in even an official Thanksgiving feast? It depends on how you define that word official. Thanksgiving celebrations were common among separatist and Puritan groups. They wanted to celebrate biblical events, not those that were the commemorations of saints' days like the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church did. So days of thanksgiving were common in the diaries of early separatists, pietists, and pilgrims. And the two sources we have for this harvest meal that took place in November 1621 make no mention of a specific date, just that there was this event that happened. And also, we know that the festival that the pilgrims held was a three-day event rather than a one-day event, which was typical of the way we do it today. But then again, maybe your family does get together for more than one day. I mean, you think about it. We make enough food. We eat it for a couple days. And yeah, yeah. Thus, while it was probably not an official Thanksgiving, it has taken on that meaning for us. The winter of 1621 was extremely harsh for those pilgrims. It was a most sad and lamentable, wrote William Bradford, the governor, that in two or three months' time, half of our company died, especially in January and February, being in the depth of winter and lacking houses and other comforts, being infected with scurvy and other diseases. Only four women survived that first winter. Furthermore, their fear of the Native Americans in that region added a layer of anxiety. Yet by summer, their circumstances had changed. As you know, the Native Americans taught them how to plant, and by the time the fall came around, they had corn and barley and peas and all kinds of other uh, things harvested and learned how to catch fish and cure those fish. And the governor said that they should have a feast and invite many of the Native Americans with them. And that's where we get this idea from legend but truth of 1621 in November for the first Thanksgiving feast. The third fact about Thanksgiving is this. Did you know that Depression-era politics played a prominent role in determining the date of our modern American Thanksgiving celebration? Now, this is one I didn't even know. Since colonial times, many Americans typically had celebrated Thanksgiving late November, yet there was no standard date. Now, that all changed in 1863. Think about that end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln declared that Thanksgiving is to be celebrated on the last Thursday in November. Well, in 1939, wanting to help out the depressed economy and retailers, President um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said it needed to be moved up an extra week to help the retailers through the Depression in the second to last Thursday in November. Now, you can imagine the stir of this cause because Americans then are like Americans today, and we don't like you messing with our traditions, right? I mean, we got football games that happen on a certain time and other things like that, so don't mess with us. It was 1941 that the Congress came up with a wise solution, and that is that Thanksgiving would be celebrated on the second to last Thursday. So two out of every seven years, we're on the second to last Thursday as we are this year because... Thursday is the 30th as well. For a few years, however, President um, Roosevelt's Thanksgiving was even mocked as Franksgiving, not Thanksgiving. So you have these facts about this holiday we celebrate that has Christian, if not Baptist, roots to it. 
that it was predated by the pilgrims in 1621 because separatists and pilgrims already had a habit of gathering together for Thanksgiving. And that the fourth Thursday, you've got to hold up the right amount of fingers, the second to last Thursday, excuse me, was a compromise. But we've got to take time not to consider the holiday itself, but this idea of becoming grateful. C.S. Lewis said that gratefulness is inner health made audible. Gratefulness is inner health made audible. What a concise and beautiful quote. Inner health made audible. And so Luke 17, I asked you to turn there, and I'm going to ask you if you are able to stand with us now in the honor of reading God's Word as we read Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to a priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them When he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and was he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Pray with me. God, our Father, as we open our Bibles to a passage of Scripture that is familiar to many of us, we pray that we do not get caught in the familiarity, but that by your Spirit you would guide us to understand the depth of meaning for it in every individual life here today. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us, and that by your love for us, you even desire to teach us to be more grateful, and you give us this season of the year to remind us of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. Your first point on your outline is that we should ask Jesus to meet our needs. We should ask Jesus to meet our needs. You look at verses 11, 12, and 13, Jesus is Walking along, he was an itinerant preacher. He didn't have a home. He was going from here to there, preaching, teaching, healing, as God led him and guided him. And in verse 12, as he gets to a village, there's some guys outside the village, as would be prescribed. Leprosy is talked about in the Old Testament. It was a skin disorder, and I won't go into depths about it, but it was disfiguring and terrible. But because it was contagious, folks were put out of the village, and lepers lived together in colonies, and it was just based on the mercy of others and their own wits that they survived. But you notice the interesting thing in verse 13. And they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, heal us. Is that what the Scripture says? What does it say? Have pity. Have mercy. They did not say to Jesus, heal us. They asked for something more important than healing. 
Now, yes, it's implied that having mercy or having pity on those might be healing them. So I don't know if it was that they didn't believe that Jesus could heal them, and so therefore they didn't say, heal us. Or if it was that they didn't think that Jesus would heal them, so they said, have mercy on us or pity on us. Or just that they were looking forward to Jesus and his band of guys who might have some food in their knapsacks, giving them something to eat for lunch. Jesus, have mercy on us. We don't know. But they point out something different that, uh, that you and I should learn. That's we need to ask Jesus to meet our needs. Quick poll. The average need in your life, is Jesus the first one you ask to meet it, or do you try to do it yourself? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that we should not meet needs ourselves. God's given us the means. He gives us intelligence and bodies to work jobs to make income so that the income He provides can meet the needs of our family. So don't take this uh, question too far. But friends, there's so many times when we get ourselves into trouble because we try to meet it ourselves rather than saying to God, God, can you meet my need? And thinking about financial needs, one thing, but what about a relationship need where you know you've been butting heads with this person for a long time and you're in a conflicted situation and you feel like any conversation you have with them could become some confrontation where it's ugly And you have tried and tried and tried and tried. Have you asked Jesus to meet that need? Have you humbled himself, yourself before him to say, how would you meet that need, Jesus? And what do I need to do differently? James 1.5, write that down, says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. That's about wisdom. And Philippians 4.19, write that one down, says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory, that God will meet our needs if we ask. Your second point on your outline is that we should obey Jesus' instructions. We should obey Jesus' instructions. Now, look at what happened here. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest, and they went off. They were cleansed. Jesus did not touch them, as far as we know. Jesus didn't have a conversation with them, as far as we know. We would assume the gospel writers would record that. So from a distance, keeping the law himself, not touching a leper, he said to them, go show yourself to a priest. Why did he do that? Because in those days, for the Jewish people, most of them were Jews. We know the one that came back was a Samaritan. That they had to go show themselves to a priest to be declared clean ritually so they could be admitted back into their um, social circle, their families. That the priest had examined them almost like a doctor. Priests did all kinds of things back in those days and time. They were the lawyer, the doctor, the judge, everything, and as well as the religious official. And so Jesus tells them, go show yourself. In other words, he wants to see if they will obey as if they have already been healed, although at the moment he says it, they're not yet healed. But what does it say? As they went. The tense there in the Greek is that just as it's recorded, as they went. Somewhere between the time Jesus said, go show yourself, and the time they reached the priest, their skin was healed. I mean, they're walking along probably going, man, what is he talking about? We're not healed yet. And then, oh, 
My skin's healed. Can you believe this? Somewhere on the way they went. What do we learn? Obey. John 14, 21, you know I love that verse. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. When we obey God, it demonstrates we love God, and when we obey and love God, then he's going to reveal himself to us. When we don't feel that God's revealing himself to us, when we feel like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, we need to ask, do we have an obedience problem or do we have a love problem? Is there some sin or something blocking our relationship with God? Jesus says, obey. We should obey. The third point on your outline. We should thank Jesus for meeting our needs. Now, this seems simple. We teach our kids this, right? All I ever needed to know, I learned in kindergarten, say thank you. We teach our children children to say thank you. But look, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. Then he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Then it adds, he was a Samaritan. Just one. Now, was it that the other guys were so excited that they couldn't get wait to get back to their family? Or was it that they were the type that want to obey to the nth degree? So they were like, man, we've been healed, but we've got to go see the priest first. And then after we see the priest, then we'll go back and see, see Jesus and say thank you. Scripture doesn't record that. We don't know. So I don't want to say ugly things about the other nine that didn't come back. They may have come back somewhere down the road, and they may have said thank you. But the very fact that Scripture records this one is for us to see that we should thank Jesus for meeting our needs. Now, this seems simple. Until you think about, have you done it? This Samaritan did three things. He praised God, he fell at Jesus' feet, and he thanked him. Leon Morris, New Testament commentator, said, If people do not give thanks quickly, they usually do not do so at all. I don't know that that's a New Testament commentary as much as a human commentary. Morris is very much human if you read his commentaries. If people do not give thanks quickly, they usually do not do so at all. And that's because it comes from our hearts. We're going to get there in our conclusion. The fourth point on your outline is we should expect Jesus' questions. Now, this is a specific situation, and it may not seem this way or be this way in an exchange that we have in which Jesus has done something for us, and we come to realize that, and we give him thanks in some way. But notice what Jesus asked here. Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? So it seems that he may be asking the first two questions to the Samaritan who's been cleansed, the former leper. And the last question to his disciple band with him is saying, we're not the, 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 you know, the uh, only one that could come back as the foreigner. We can sympathize with Jesus when we feel ingratitude and People don't realize what has been done for them, and they're ungrateful or too busy. But friends, we should expect Jesus' 
questions. The fifth point on your outline from verse 19 is that we should welcome Jesus' salvation. We should welcome Jesus' salvation. It says there in verse 19, Then he said to him, so Jesus says to the former leper Samaritan, who is still presumptively at Jesus' feet because of what Jesus says, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. That is perchance a soft translation. Because the better translation, the actual Greek is, rise and go, your faith has saved you. I healed your physical body, Jesus is saying. But because you saw something deeper in it and recognized who I am, you came and worshipped me, and it must be implied by what Jesus says, not just worshiping me for healing your physical body, but worshiping me as God. You've demonstrated your faith in me as God's son. You're saved. You're not only physically healed, you are spiritually healed. You're cleansed, you're forgiven, you're free. And that we should welcome Jesus' salvation. Friends, I say that that way because... It's really easy for me, and I think I'm human, and you guys know that, and you all are too. To act like I don't welcome Jesus' salvation sometimes. You know, there are times I'd rather not think that I'm saved. I'd rather not think that I'm a pastor. I'd rather just be a guy that can do whatever he wants. Who cares what the Bible says? Who cares if I'm going to hurt somebody's feeling, right? You ever feel that way? You just get selfish, you get prideful, you get arrogant, you get ugly, you get mad about something. Who cares? And I'm not very welcoming of Jesus' salvation at that point in time. If anything, I'm slamming the door on it. I don't want to be saved. I don't want to have to follow the rules of the Bible. I don't want to have to humble myself to anybody because I'm going to do things my way. Shame on me. Sinful me. I need to stop and ask forgiveness for that kind of arrogant attitude. Jesus saved us. We should welcome that salvation. So in conclusion, it's not going to be a quick conclusion, but the bottom, the foundation of what I see happening here in this scripture is this. Two keys to becoming grateful. Two keys to becoming grateful, and each of them have two subpoints. But the first key is recognizing the blessing. So, you may not have been healed physically by Jesus. I don't know that any of you have had leprosy. But all of you have been blessed in one way or the other, countless ways, if we were to count. That's a funny phrase, wasn't it? Countless ways, if we were to count. Okay. But we have to realize that God doesn't owe us anything. We didn't do it on our own. We don't deserve what we got. And we have to come from a posture of humility. 
Gratitude most naturally flows from a humble heart. Pride presumes or overlooks God's blessings, but gratitude flows from a humble heart. If you have a thankfulness problem, you have a pride problem. As Pastor Stephen Furtick, who I don't agree with much of what he says, but I agree with this statement, you can't be grateful for something you feel entitled to. Your pride blocks gratefulness. So you've got to first recognize the fact that you have been blessed by God in order to even get to the point of being grateful is recognizing what God has done for you. So uh, your, your sub point there is to notice what God has done. All the ways that God has healed you, all the ways that God has blessed you. God blesses us because he loves us. And then your second sub point there, 1.1, is count all your blessings. Psalm 103.2, you can write that one down. Psalm 103.2 is beautiful. In the one phrase that it has, it says, forget not all his blessings. Forget not all his blessings. If we were to count them, it would take all day. When's the last time you made a thankfulness list? When's the last time you thought about all the things that God has done for you? Forget not all his blessings. So recognize the blessing is our first point to becoming grateful. The second point, recognizing the blesser. I know that's a terrible word I just made up, but come on, give it to me. We've got to have our alliteration there, blessing, blesser. And you notice a capital B, blesser, so I'm talking about God, right? Humility is part of it, but contentment is part of it as well. And humility and contentment have a little overlap. They're somewhat synonymous. Charles Spurgeon said, it's not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. Thomas Akempis, the uh, Catholic theologian of generations ago, said, if you remember the dignity of the giver, capital G, speaking of God, no gift will seem small or mean, for nothing can be valueless that is given by the Most High God. We've got to See what we've been blessed with, recognizing the blessing, but then recognizing the blesser that all the good that we have ultimately comes from God. 2.1 on your outline says, act because of what God has done. Remember what the Samaritan did. The Samaritan praised God, he fell at Jesus' feet, and he thanked him. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be a model for you that you think, okay, first thing I need to do, okay, God, I praise you. And then you fall down in front. No, no, you don't have to be wooden or mechanical. But it's this idea that shows us what to do. Would you turn back to Colossians with me? So um, all the way back through the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 11 through 14 says, Being strengthened with all power according to glorious endurance so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of 
of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We act because of what God has done, that He has saved us from our sins and brought us into His kingdom as heirs and joint heirs with His Son, Jesus. Amen. And so we think of that on a spiritual level, but turn the page, would you, to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Actually, we could start reading in verse 15. Colossians 3, when we think about the more mundane things, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That in everything we do, we are to give thanks. When's the last time you were walking and you said, hey, thanks God that I can walk? When's the last time you were singing that you thought, thanks that I have a singing voice, whether you like your singing voice or not? When's the last time you were breathing that you thank God that you can breathe? I mean, you can get crazy with this. But thanking God for everything we do. Thank God for the job we have, the family we have, the friends we have. Yes, I know sometimes we'd like to smack some of them, but they'd probably like to smack us. But thank God for everything. You're in Colossians. Turn a little further to your right to Revelation, the last book of your Bible. Revelation chapter 4. Verse 9. This picture of the end of days as we know it. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him. Who sits on the throne and who lives forever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. Talking about Jesus. That's the one who sits on the throne. And worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say... You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by you they were created and have their being. Look at chapter 5 of Revelation. Verse 12, in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. We... Thank God because of what he has done. And we act on that thanks. We tell him thanks. We give him things because of our thanks. We give him our very lives. 2.2 on your outline. That's giving thanks. Isaac Walton, the English preacher and author, not the guy that the uh, gun shooting ranges are named after. Isaac Walton says, God has two dwellings, one in heaven and the other in the meek and thankful heart. What a beautiful picture. God has two dwellings, one in heaven and the other in a meek and thankful heart. 2 Corinthians 9.15 reminds us that thanks be to God for the indescribable gift, the fact that he saved us. 
Psalm 9.1 says to us, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount to you all your wonderful deeds. Everything that God has done, we are to give thanks for. We recognize the blessing. We recognize the blesser. Now your summary statement at the bottom of your outline. Pride presumes or overlooks God's blessings, but gratitude flows from a humble heart. I didn't go back and read it as I should have, but I remember years ago I wrote a brief blog post quoting Don Witt. And I don't remember the exchange that led to it, but Don said, humility is welcome here. And that's just such a beautiful, simple stage. How many of you don't welcome humility? Humility is when we say that I can't and God can. Humility is where we say, I need somebody else's help with this. Humility is where we know that our strength ends and we've got to ask for the strength of someone else. Humility is when our knowledge or our wisdom ends and we've got to seek it from someone else or from God himself. Humility is welcome. And humility from our hearts is the foundation and the soil from which gratitude grows. So my challenge to us this morning, friends, if we're struggling with thankfulness, with gratitude, I think the root of it is humility. And maybe that's where we need to start. Asking God to bring us to humility that we might recognize the blessing and the blesser. Let's pray. God, our Father, We saw that humility in the Samaritan leper, the one man who returned to thank Jesus. That he was humble enough to realize he couldn't have done it himself. And that you did it for him. And he humbled himself in his actions by returning, by praising, by falling at Jesus' feet. And by thanking Him. May it be that we too would humble ourselves. Whether we need to throw ourselves at Jesus' feet. Or write in a journal. Or just confess to someone else. Of your great goodness for us God. Whatever it is. Would we respond in humility today. Father we recognize that. Pride's a constant struggle. I think everyone here probably needs to confess it to one extent or another. Would we be humble before you that we might be grateful before you? God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen.